and pro- This is Viewpoint with attorney and author Chuck Chrismeyer. Viewpoint is a one-hour open-line talk show confronting the issues of America's heart and home. To express your viewpoint, please call 804-754-1988. That's 804-754-1988. And now with today's edition of Viewpoint, here is Chuck Chrismeyer. People who are dear to us are becoming virtual strangers to us not by our choice, but by their disgust with our views, and as a result, their dismissal of us. In most cases, their designation of us as untouchables is a reaction to our beliefs about things like homosexuality, transgenderism, race, abortion, salvation, judgment, and sin itself. Our crime is not the adoption of those beliefs, but our refusal to abandon them as the truly enlightened folks seem to have done. The culture is embracing, as you know, a new world vision, but many of us have not. So we're charged with refusal to bend, and now, shocked and numbed by our recent arrest, we're prepping for trial, either in the courts or just in the courts of society. It could be held anywhere, We converse and interact. Gone are the days of Bible-believing Christians living an unchallenged faith. Because the land that you and I once viewed as a comfortable home is becoming foreign. Foreign territory, barely recognizable to those of us who remembered other times. So the question is, are we ready? Well, ready or not, here it comes. The mandate to face the cancel culture. And here it's charges against us, against you, and against me, and to do something perhaps new to us, but historically common to the church, to be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. To not be ashamed of our master's words, to act as ambassadors for Christ, and contend earnestly for the faith once delivered to the saints. So how do we stand? How do you stand? When we as Christians are charged with homophobia, sexism, racism, transphobia, judgmentalism, bias, bigotry, every conceivable derogatory word that you can imagine, you'll need to be prepared to give an answer. You'll need to give an answer not only in response to the culture's challenge, but also in response to what may become one of the church's last major temptations. Would you like to know what it is? The temptation to minimize the importance of doctrines that are critical to the faith, but offensive to the world. Well, if certain biblical truths drive unbelievers away from us and our churches, then shouldn't we avoid those and concentrate instead on just loving people, sharing the gospel, being good neighbors, making people feel good? Will the desire to get along supersede our desire to obey God? When God instructed the people of Israel on how they were to function in their new land, believe it or not, he placed obedience above all else. And yet today, the word obey has become the most hated word in the church. Could that be a symptom of our already having embraced the the counterculture in spirit? Today on Viewpoint, we want to talk about this cancel culture thing, uh, we're going to talk with a friend from Southern California. He's written a fantastic book, Christians in a Cancel Culture. His name is Joe Dallas. 
speaking with truth and grace in a hostile world. And Joe, you have done a masterful job in presenting this, and I welcome you on the program. Hey, thank you, Chuck. Appreciate your encouragement, and I sure appreciate you having me. Well, is there any hope for these things out there in California? I spent 30 years out there, uh, not only practicing law, but teaching for nine years and running twice for the state legislature, but things have not shown themselves to be a friend to grace out there in California for a long time. We've got some terrific beaches and some terrific sunshine. Don't get me started on the moral political climate, but it's always sunny. We got that going for us. Well, it's interesting that historically, Joe, over the years, uh, much of the uh, activity and uh, uh, what should we say, trajectory of evangelical churchianity has actually found its impetus coming right out of Southern California, for instance, The church growth movement began right there in Pasadena, California, where I practiced law in the early 1970s, and uh, then it metastasized into the seeker-sensitive movement, then into the emerging church movement. Aren't those all reflections of a form of the church comporting to the ways of the world in order to avoid having to deal with an early evidence of the cancel culture? I don't know what else you could call it. I think that uh, it's so often true that what starts off as very, very good begins to veer just slightly in one direction or another. And with time, not really all that much time, it's wildly off course. And I think you just described that trajectory uh, when you talked about the direction some churches have gone, which is heartbreaking because I was born again here in Orange County, California, uh, under the ministry of Chuck Smith at Calvary Chapel, back mm. when I was a 16-year-old hippie in 1971. Well, well, well. So you're a converted hippie. I, I am. You know what? I'm not even fully converted. I still like to wear shredded jeans and T-shirts. Uh, the hair thing, well, I've lost most of it anyway, so I got over <laughs> that. But, <laughs> but yes, I was one of those Jesus freaks you saw running around with the bumper stickers and the big Bibles and the Ixuses, and, you know, I I got quite a grounding in the Word, but you're right, Chuck, many great works began in California, and some have remained Christ-centered and solid, and some have not, and Mm. I think that's uh, a part of the deterioration. My thinking is that uh, if the Church had consistently stayed biblically grounded, I think that we would have been much more of a buffer against the general corruption we're seeing in the culture. Well, as you say uh, in your book, it's not a wholesale revision of truth that was the original problem, but a minimizing of its importance. And you begin on the trajectory of minimizing truth, and then gradually you minimize more and more and more and more until there's almost nothing left. So when there's almost nothing left, how in the world do you stand in the evil day? I think that's the question before us here today as we talk about this uh, cancel culture issue. And uh, friends, I would really strongly urge you to get a copy of this book because it's going to speak right to your circumstances, right to your heart. The very things that you're experiencing or that your friends and relatives are experiencing and it's going to help you get a handle on it. Hopefully our conversation today will assist in that regard. 
But the book is a $16 book, yours for $15 on our website, saveus.org. Saveus.org. You can give us a call at 1-800-SAVE-USA. That's 1-800-SAVE-USA. Or write to us at Save America Ministries, P.O. Box 70879, Richmond, Virginia, 23255. Writing a check at $5 for postage and handling. Christians in a cancel culture. Now, Joe, I got to tell you, I when I grew up, uh, even from 10 years of age, I just had a tremendous love for my country, and I felt that it was a good and righteous country, not perfect. And when I saw the flag waving, I thrilled to see old glory paint the breeze. I've got a problem right now in my heart, a lot of grief. We'll talk about that when we get back. Stay tuned, friends. This is Viewpoint. Once upon a time, children could pray and read their Bibles in school. Divorces were practically unknown, as was child abuse. In our once great America, virginity and chastity were popular virtues, and homosexuality was an abomination. So what happened in just one generation? Hi, I'm Chuck Chris Meyer, and I urge you to join me daily on Viewpoint, where we discuss the most challenging issues touching our hearts and homes. Could America's moral slide relate to the Fourth Commandment? Listen to Viewpoint on this radio station or anytime at saveus.org. Are you prepared to resist temptation? Yes, I'm I'm talking to you. Are you prepared to resist temptation? You say, well, what kind of temptation? I resist temptation all all the time. Well, yes, but there there is a kind of temptation that is becoming exceedingly powerful. And it's coming in on what the poet uh, Frost once said, little cat feet. It's come in quietly, and now it's coming in with the roar of a lion, seeking to devour whom it may. We see the enemy of our soul active through those who have rejected the authority of Jesus Christ and the Word of God and have accepted a very different authority. The Scripture talks about calling evil good and good evil. Sometimes we say calling black white and white black. And that's exactly what the cancel culture does. It completely reverses the concept of virtue. How serious is this? Well, back in 1992, Forbes magazine, the premier business magazine in America, devoted its entire 75th anniversary edition to asking a question, a probing question to all America. Here's the question. Whatever happened to virtue in America? The magazine was about, oh, I'd say five-eighths of an inch thick. In other words, very thick. Some of the profound writers and voices of the time in 1992 were desperately concerned about virtue in America. One writer even wrote an entire book about an inch and a half thick called The Book of Virtues, seeking to restore virtue in the land. Interestingly, nature abhors a vacuum. And when there's a vacuum of virtue, it's going to be filled by some other form, even if it's a counterfeit virtue. 
Our guest today, Joe Dallas, describes this counterfeit virtue coming in today as an orgy of virtue. Put virtue in quotation marks. Because the virtue that is being presented by the cancel culture today is just the opposite of what we have historically known as virtue, not only from a traditional social view here in America and in the Western world, but also as described by the Bible. Joe, this matter of virtue is a very, very big deal. The Bible says that we should add to our faith virtue. But it seems that virtue has fallen on exceedingly hard times, hasn't it? It has, Chuck. Uh, There is either, as you are describing, an absence of virtue and or an adoption of a false virtue. Mm -hmm. I think virtue is a lot like spirituality. Uh, There is true spirituality and there is false spirituality. People are very hungry for spirituality. Mm -hmm. There are times that hunger will lead them in the wrong direction, and they will wind up feasting on a false spirituality. And I think the same is true of virtue. Uh, I think that people inherently are hungry for some sense of moral purpose. But I think that that hunger may guide them to the wrong sources, and they may adopt a false sense of virtue, whether it's the false virtue of the self-righteous, like the Pharisees, or uh, what I would consider to be the false virtue of the woke generation, or uh-huh. the social justice warrior, or the cancel culture. It, uh, they are both, I think, uh, different sides of the same coin, right. a virtue based not on godliness, but on some human sense of superiority. So the great temptation that you refer to uh, in your book is not the temptation to be unvirtuous, but the temptation to conform to the mandates and the pressure of the cancel culture. Yes, and I think here is part of the problem, Chuck, at least part of it. I think we are not only in a time of uh, moral freefall, I think we're also in a time of serious uh, intellectual laziness. Man, we just don't think things through. Okay, I I really think we have stopped doing our homework. You must have noticed the trend more and more to speak in sound bites and write and communicate in very brief form. Well, that's the reason why we do an entire broadcast here, Joe, for an hour on one subject. I, I have to tell you, when I saw that, I laughed because so many uh, uh, broadcasts are much, much shorter, and the reason seems to be people are accommodating yes. the intellectual laziness of the times. But what that does is it keeps people from investigating. Mm-hmm. Like the Bereans investigated, and, and they were described as noble because they heard Paul the Apostle preach, and they said, well, that sounds good, but I'm going to check it out and do my homework. And that is described as noble, and yet today... You can wave an allegedly virtuous cause in front of people who are very hungry for virtue, and without examining the claims of the legitimacy of the cause, they'll go far out, a cause. Let me jump on the bandwagon. So they jump on the bandwagon without checking the wheels. And and as a result, (laughs) 
a lot of people are committed to causes without understanding that the causes are based on false premises. Well, that's that's the stuff that real tragedy is made of. Perhaps uh, you were not aware of a cover story that came out in Time magazine about 10 years ago. It was called 10 Ideas That Are Changing the World. Number seven of those ideas was called synthetic authenticity. Try to get your mind around that. Synthetic Uh, uh, authenticity. In other words, the pretense of the real. A Harvard guru, business guru, was promoting this idea that the real thing that we should be doing is actually to promote the unreal, to promote the false as real to promote the synthetic as if it were the real deal. He said that will take the the uh, uh, target off of your back. So you won't have to actually provide the full expectation of the real. Just give people what they want, the feeling of what they want, rather than the real thing. Isn't it interesting that that is exactly, the spirit of that is exactly what has come over the evangelical church over the past 20 years, giving people increasingly the feeling of the real rather than the substance of the faith once delivered to the saints. I tell you, Chuck, what you just described sounds to me kind of like a diabolical P.T. Barnum. (laughs) Then give those suckers what they want. Who cares whether or not it's true? Well, no, wait a minute. Isn't that what Burger King did? Burger King gave us the the ministry mantra. Got to give the people what they want. Have it your way, right? That's quite a thought, because that is uh, the absolute antithesis of what we read in the book of Acts, when the apostles had such a sense of urgency about preaching and teaching the truth without taking any polls to see what was or was not palatable to the people. And I, I mean, good grief. Chuck, I don't want to be indifferent to people's feelings. Of course not. not. All. I don't want to be indifferent to whether or not we all get along, but the reality is, if we are stewards of truth, it is the truth that matters, not how well it's received. And yes, I would agree we've lost that. The more consumer-driven the church becomes, the less effective it must become. I have in my bookshelf a whole series of books that define the trajectory of uh, the attitude uh, and uh, movement of the evangelical church in our time, going back to the 1960s. And uh, it follows exactly what we're talking about. Even the titles of the books follow exactly what we're talking about. And I remember as we formed Save America Ministries back in 1993, and I sat down with a dear friend of mine who actually was one of the key people in the largest Christian radio network in the country. And I was sharing with him why I felt God was calling me to leave the practice of law and the message that God would have me deliver, uh, shall we say, in due process from the Lord to the church at this time. And here's what Mm -hmm. he said in response. Well, don't say it that way. Say it some other way. In other words, say it nice. Because after all, you want what you're saying to be received. 
So don't say it straightforwardly. Don't say it clearly. Just kind of beat around the bush and say it softly. What say you? (laughs) Again, Chuck, I would like my words to be full of grace, seasoned with salt, well put, and never needlessly offensive. Mm -hmm. But biblically, there is no justification for using the reception of our words as a barometer as to whether or not we should have said them. Thank Uh, you so much. Yeah, when when we speak truth, um, whether it was Jesus or Paul or Stephen or Peter mm-hmm. or James, for heaven's sake. Um, no, it was not well received in many cases. But there, there were two primary goals. One was, of course, the conversion of the hearers. I mean, the heart mm-hmm. of God is towards reconciliation. We want to see people reconciled to God through Christ. And if people who are believers are in error, we want to see that error rectified. So we want to see conversion, whether from death to life or from error to truth. Mm -hmm. But even if we do not get that top desired result, a second desired result is we were clear enough that the hearers heard what we said. And this is something I tried to harp on in the book. Mm -hmm. If you listen to the sermons in the book of Acts from any of these guys, Peter, uh, 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 Paul, Stephen, whether or not you liked what those guys said, there's no way you would have walked away and wondered what they said. You would right. have walked away knowing what they said. Clarity is also a critical part of our mandate, because uh, we, we need to know, as stewards of truth, that we clearly gave the full counsel of God, because, heck, Chuck, that's what we're going to answer for at the judgment seat of Christ. I'm not going to answer for who believed me or who liked me or whose life changed because of what I said. Although, yes, I want lives to change because of what we say. Of course, mm-hmm. I'll even cop to this. I want to be liked. <laughs> I'd rather be Who doesn't want to I'm be popular. liked? Who doesn't want yeah. to be liked and accepted? We're, we're told that one of the fundamental needs of humankind is to be loved and accepted. So who doesn't want to be loved and accepted? Even Jesus wanted to be loved and accepted, but he wasn't going to allow that to change the truth of his message. That's the point. It's when the desire to be loved and accepted is overriding our commitment to truth. Now we have a problem. And I do think, Chuck, just adding to the mix, somewhere along the line, a number of churches, including leaders and laity, Mm -hmm. got the erroneous idea that if people are made to feel good about us, if they come to our churches and feel comfortable, if they like us, if we're all getting along, that that means we've reached them. And so people will often say, well, now, don't say something that will hamper your inability to get along with people, because otherwise you'll never reach them. Mm -hmm. On a personal note, Chuck, I gave myself passionately uh, to the pro-gay cause from 1978 to 1984. I was a very committed gay activist Mm -hmm. and a very committed member of a pro-gay church. Mm -hmm. Believe me, I was not converted to truth by someone just being nice to me. I had Christians confront me, lovingly, of course, and with respect and with intelligence and grace. I don't believe in the Christian big mouth. I really don't. Right, neither do I. just needlessly brazen and and says he's being persecuted because he acted like a jerk. That's silly. 
Mm-hmm. But the fact is, I didn't like what these guys were saying to me. It made me very uncomfortable. I would sometimes go home and uh, hate to admit it, but I'd just get blasted drunk to block out the discomfort I felt over what they were saying to me. These days, I suppose I might have walked away saying, you've injured me, I'm going to file a lawsuit. But mm-hmm. the fact is, that's what converted me. If there's no conviction of sin, there's not going to be a conversion to the truth. So my feeling is if, if we are making people just feel good about us and we're patting ourselves on the back because they're so happy with us, regardless of their ever hearing truth from us, then I'd say we are not fulfilling our job description. In fact, we have not reached them, but they have actually reached us and conformed us unwittingly to their own cancel culture. We'll be right back after this with Joe Dallas, Christians in a Cancel Culture. Wonderful book, $16 book, yours for $15 on our website, saveus.org. I urge you to get a hold of it. We'll be right back. There is so much more about Chuck Chris Meyer and Save America Ministries on our website, saveus.org. For example, on the front page are two great videos. First, an interview and discussion of Chuck's book, Out of Egypt. Also, a great TV interview with Chuck regarding his book, Seduction of the Saints. Much more videos, a for pastors only section, and also you can view Chuck's weekly teachings. All at his website, saveus.org. That's saveus.org. Also on Chuck's website, listen to Chuck's Viewpoint broadcast. Listen to the archives. Maybe you missed a program. Check it out at saveus.org. Also, there are some great resources, hospitality information, also information about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, newsletters, articles, prophecy, prayer and revival information, all at saveus.org. Welcome back to Viewpoint. I'm Chuck Chris Meyer. Today we're talking about something that is increasingly troubling our country and uh, troubling the church, troubling our pastors, and troubling each one of us, including our children and our grandchildren. There is no place where cancel culture does not have its tentacles grasping and seeking to move it into its mold. No place. So, how should we then live? What should we do? Christians are feeling the heat from the cancel culture and may feel a pull toward one of two extremes, the wrath of man or the fear of man. Well, here's the problem. The Bible warns us against both. Certainly, it says the fear of man brings a snare. But what we should be concerned about is the wrath of God, not the wrath of man. So, Joe, when we consider that, are we not on the horns of a dilemma? Because no matter which way we turn over those two phrases, wrath of man or fear of God, we're going to conform and compromise to the culture, the uh, cancel culture. If we let ourselves be guided by either of those fears, you bet we will. We will either try to appease people or we will get so angry at people that we lose our effectiveness. And I, I mean, whether you're Moses striking the rock again <laughs> or, or whether you're Peter saying, I never knew the guy. Either way, 
you've gone to an extreme that is unacceptable. And I guess that's something we, <laughs> it's our nature. I think we are forever careening between extremes, either being hyper-judgmental and pharisaical or being just uh, rather mushy about things. But yeah. hey, um, listen, we're, every, every Christian I know is concerned about our country's moral trends and our social political trajectory and all that it implies. My feeling is let's consider it a call to arms, not to become the Christian army taking over the country and establishing a theocracy, but to be the church as we are meant to be. The balance of grace and truth, not ever feeling we need to choose between the two, because good night, if there's no, um, if there's no truth, that's not grace. And if there's truth without grace, that's not going to be much good either. So I think mm-hmm. that we should rise to meet the challenge of just saying, okay, Jesus was and is full of grace and truth. Let's not be so lazy as to try to choose between the two. Let's adhere to both. Let's see both more manifest in the way we, we live our lives and, you know, candidly in the way we uh, run our churches. As Unfortunately, well. the word grace has been co-opted by the early stage of the cancel culture and turned it into disgrace. It was redefined uh, not to be God's unmerited favor that would enable us to do his will and obey his voice, but rather to overlook and wink at our sin. And so, in effect, the church actually used a biblical word, a precious biblical word, distorted it, perverted it, in order to please the people. I've been so sad to see how some teachers who I've known and and have heard and, and had regarded have turned around and done exactly what Scripture warned us against doing. And mm-hmm. They've turned the grace of God into licentiousness. Mm-hmm. So there are, there really are people who are teaching people today that, you know what, grace covers everything, therefore you can live any way you want, you can do what you want, and it really doesn't matter. Now, what I see is, I, I mean, I can almost hear Paul roaring you know what? You know, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. But yes, uh, as you said, there is that uh, that very presumptuous teaching, and there's no question that that has contributed to, um, I think, a very casual approach to things that were once, among Christians anyway, things that were once uniformly considered to be sacred, and by the way, very immovable truth. Absolutely. Now, uh, about eight years ago, the Los Angeles Times came out with an article uh, concerning hell, and uh, they didn't do it for the hell of it either. (laughs) They did it with a reason. And so they brought on an evangelical pastor who was well-known in Southern California, And they asked him whether he believed in hell. And his answer was yes. Then they asked him, well, are you teaching and preaching about it? And his answer was no. And they said, well, why? And here was his answer. Because hell isn't sexy anymore. He already had been co-opted by the cancel culture before the word was ever created. I'm absolutely enlightened 
to learn that hell was ever sexy. Yeah, well, exactly. In other words, what it was a nice way of saying that hell isn't popular. And if I teach about hell, I might lose some congregation. I might lose some of my listeners. That's really what he was saying. Now, the other thing is that one of the premier spiritual leaders of our time appeared on Larry King Live. His name was Billy Graham. And Billy Graham was asked by Larry King, am I going to hell? And Billy Graham refused to answer the question. Well, I'm not the judge. In other words, he refused to give what the Bible says about hell and about salvation. Why? Because he didn't want to offend his host, because his host was popular with the people. These are things that are extremely troubling, and the reality is that that kind of thing is recurring now on steroids all across this country in our churches. How in the world, if the Bible tells us that in the evil day we should do all to stand and stand having our loins girt about with truth, How are we going to do that when even our leaders are succumbing to the great temptation to conform to the cancel culture? On the one hand, Chuck, I can appreciate how uncomfortable it is when somebody asks you point blank, am I going to hell? I can fully understand the desire not to say something hurtful. I can understand the desire not to be seen as a judgmental, wild-eyed fundamentalist, or the desire to sort of reach across the aisle and not alienate people. But the bottom line is, the ambassador is sent by the person he is representing. Mm -hmm. Therefore, he answers to the sender, not to the audience. Wow, that so is when, so, so, so important, and I think we forget that. I, I think that's the point. I think that oftentimes, and it's very easy to do, and I will be the first to cop to the fact that I've done it. In fact, I in the book, I described the time I had done that. I understand it. But the reality is, again, we have to ask ourselves, what is our purpose? What is the priority to us? And Chuck, like you said, more than ever, we're going to have to be looking at that in a time when the, the church is largely letting the world tell us what sins we may or may not preach against. Now, I'll tell you, if you do a show on the sin, the evil of racism, if you do a show on the evil of uh, wife-beating or the evil of treating people unfairly, um, you'll get a gold star from mm-hmm. much of the world, mm-hmm. you know. But if you do a show on the sin of homosexuality, on the impossibility of really tr- changing your sex, even if you say you now identify as a member of the opposite sex, oh, boo, yes, you're, you're going to be in hot water. Mm-hmm. So I do think we are basically saying to the world, you may tell us which sins we may preach against and which ones we either may not preach against or which ones we must now stop calling it sin. Well, that has already taken place. That's already taken place. Uh, Canada has already made it illegal to teach or preach on any of those issues. And uh, 
people have been imprisoned already and fined for doing so. That same spirit is now invading our country, and as you indicated in your book, there is a high likelihood that before very long, the tax-exempt status of nonprofit organizations uh, and churches will be revoked in this country over those very issues. I've got no doubt we are headed in that direction, and I think that we're going to have to make some hard decisions. I tried to point out in the book, Chuck, that there are some hills I'm not going to die on. If somebody wants to argue about whether the rapture of the church is pre-trib, mid-trib, or Mm post-trib, I mean, that's an interesting discussion, but that's not a hill I'm going to die on and say, well, that's such an essential issue, we can't be in communion if we're not on the same page. Well, it will be what it will be, won't it? Yeah, I don't think we're going to change. We're not going to make it happen one way or another. I I know that. Um, But when it comes to something as basic as the definition of the family, the definition of sexual morality, the definition of true social justice, the, the question of life within the womb, The definition of salvation, the exclusivity of Jesus' Mm -hmm. claims. No, these are non-negotiables. And I understand these are the very issues that are currently the most offensive to the world, which is exactly why I think a lot of believers are backing away from them. But, Chuck, we cannot, not if we're going to try to fulfill the Great Commission, because if we can't preach on sin and on the coming judgment and on the exclusive nature of Christ's claims as being the only way to the Father. If we can't preach those basics, we cannot fulfill our mandate to preach the gospel. Well, there is no gospel then. If There's no need for a gospel because the gospel is good news only because of the bad news, because uh, of the death penalty on sin without the uh, forgiveness of Christ. So uh, we actually neuter the gospel when we do that. Now, you uh, have said in your book that there's no room for agreeing to disagree anymore, and I agree with that. There's no room for agreeing to disagree. And I want to bring up another aspect about this issue of argument. Uh, My understanding is, really, a man convinced against his will will be of the same opinion still. Let's talk about this as it relates to these cancel culture issues. We'll be right back, friends. Joe Dallas, our guest. Have you ever considered what the early church was like? Many people are developing a heart longing for a greater fulfillment in our practices as Christians. A recent study showed 53,000 people a week are leaving the back door of America's churches in frustration. What is going on? Why has there not been even a 1% gain among followers of Christ in the last 25 years? Could it be that God is seeking to restore first century Christianity for the 21st century? Jesus said, I'll build my church. Is Christ by his spirit stirring to prepare the church for the 21st century? The early church prayed together and broke bread from house to house. They were family, and it was said by all who observed, behold how they loved one another. Incredible. But the same can be found right now. Go to saveus.org and click Sell Church. We can revive first century Christianity for the 21st century. It's about people, not programs. It's about a body, not a building. That's saveus.org. Click Sell Church. Can we go along to get along? Is there room for agreeing to disagree on issues related to the so-called cancel culture of our time? Or 
have we actually seen ourselves facing a counterfeit gospel, counterfeit sins, to completely move away from even the necessity of the gospel of Jesus Christ as long as we conform to the new sins and redemption of the cancel culture. And supposing that we're facing these issues, can we argue ourselves out from under the cancel culture? Is it a worthy enterprise? Is there any hope to do so? That's what we want to look at here for the next couple of minutes with Joe uh, Dallas, our guest, with his book, Christians in a Cancel Culture. Joe, uh, it seems to me right now that there's no opportunity to agree to disagree anymore. You're not allowed, afforded the opportunity to have a different viewpoint or a different opinion because to do so is to be an ultimate sinner against the cancel culture Christ. Yeah, uh, Chuck, I think we've got two things going on at the same time, and this has always been true. You have the group or the cause or the movement, whatever it, whichever it is, mm-hmm. and then you have the individual. All right. So just for example, as a group, the Pharisees were very antagonistic to Jesus, and yet there was a Nicodemus in the bunch, mm-hmm. you see? Right. So there's always a Nicodemus in the bunch. Mm-hmm. We tend to write people off because they're part of a group that is openly hostile to the faith. But the fact is, there are individuals, lesbian women, gay men, transgender people, pro-abortion people, uh, people who uh, believe in, in the critical race theory, mm-hmm. uh, and so forth, who have honest questions and with whom we can have an honest, productive dialogue. Right. Now, but Jesus the, had the, to discern. Jesus had to yes. discern that individual and we can't just categorically go out and spew our arguments broadly because they're going to fall not only on deaf ears anymore but on violent ears and yet there are still opportunities now just for example uh i remember uh, and i wrote about this in the book speaking at a conference, and a bunch of uh, lesbian activists came storming into the sanctuary, blowing whistles and throwing condoms and just behaving (laughs) maniacally. One of them got in my face, screaming at me, calling me, well, biological absurdities I'd never even heard before. I said, wow, (laughs) I I learned some new words that day. So I I said, okay, you know what, We're, we're getting nowhere. All I all I am going to ask of you is to this have do this. Forget about me. You think I'm a jerk? Fine, I'm a jerk. Look into the claims of Jesus Christ. That's all I'm, I'm asking you to do. Go home, grab a Bible, whether you believe in God or not. Read the Gospel of John and ask God, will He show you whether or not this is true and speak to your heart? And uh, this was right before security came and cleared them all out of there. Well, <laughs> I think about. Three to five years later, Chuck, Mm -hmm. I was speaking at a conference, and this lovely young woman who is volunteering at the registration table sees me coming and comes up to me and gives me this huge hug and says, do you remember me? And I did not. I had no idea who she was. And then she describes the incident, and I thought, my gosh, you are in every conceivable way. This is a different woman I'm talking Mm -hmm. to. But she said she had done what I had asked her to do, and that led to her 
looking into the claims of Christ, and then finally going to attend a church, and then going forward to be born again, then be baptized, and living a sanctified life. Now, I did not have the capacity to know that she would become the woman God had made her. Right. But I think we have to be sowing the seed. I think we need to be judicious enough not to walk into ridiculous situations. I think we need to know when to shake the dust off our feet. I think we need to take the scripture seriously when it says a man who's a heretic after the first and second admonition rejects. Don't go banging your head against the wall. But by the same token, I think we can't afford to say because the environment is so intimidating and there's so much opposition, we cannot speak truth and expect there to be any good fruit coming from it because that's what a lot of people said mm-hmm. in a time that was gentler than the times now. But still, Chuck, when I was born again, plenty of people thought the hippie movement was the worst thing that ever happened in American history. Mm-hmm. And there were there were some logical reasons to write us off and say, boy. And now people are back wearing their beards people. and their long hair all over again. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, at least we were cheap, Chuck, when I... When I was raising my kids and, and we were spending tons of money on their clothing and haircuts, I'd say, why couldn't you have been a bum like me? I was barefoot and long-haired. didn't cost my parents a penny. But that's a whole other story. Okay. Let's go. Let's bring this right up, uh, up uh, personal, right in our faces. We have families. We have children. We have grandchildren. Many of them have gone off to college, universities, and uh, they have been converted to cancel culture and all of its precepts. Many have actually taken the claims of Christ and actually, shall we say, caused them to be conformed to the cancel culture so that they give what appear to be biblical arguments to support the positions of the cancel culture. How do parents and grandparents deal with this, Joe? I think there is still a place, in fact, there's a crying need for reasoning with people. Mm -hmm. And this we can do. I really believe, Chuck, this is the season of the apologists. We have got to brush up our skills at articulating and defending the faith. There is a place, just for example, or sort of taking the Mars Hill approach. Paul goes to Mars Hill, he looks around and says, well, you Athenians, what an interesting bunch. You are very religious. Yeah. Okay, we have something in common. You and I both believe there is something beyond what we can see in the material. Let's start there. And I think that when I'm talking to someone who seems strident and unreasonable and says, you are a hater, you are a bigot, or if Christian parents have a daughter who comes home and says, mom and dad, Have you repented of your racism yet? You're white, you're racist. Or mom and dad, I now identify as a male even though I was born female, and I insist you join me in that or else you hate me and you rejected me. (laughs) I like to say, okay, can we reason about this? Do you disagree with anything? Well, of course I do. Do you disapprove of anything? Well, naturally I do. Do you hate everyone you disagree with or everyone who does something you disapprove of? Why, of course not. All it means is I disagree or I disapprove. It doesn't mean I hate them. Thanks very much. I couldn't have said it better myself. (laughs) So you reasoned reasoned there, but there are those you cannot reason with 
because they have been so completely indoctrinated, uh, propagandized with a counter-cultural, artificial, synthetic churchianity or Christianity. That's really what a lot of the cancel culture precepts are. They're counterfeits to the Christian doctrine. And that's why young people are so susceptible to them, because it makes them feel like they're doing something righteous, that they're doing something that they they need to have a cause, and they need to uh, be passionate about it. Isn't that what's driving many many of them? I think so, and I think in some cases we may be right back to uh, Cain, basically saying, I want to sacrifice the work of my own hands. I think that for a lot of people, righteousness is now being defined in terms of what you can verify through the good deeds, or at least allegedly good deeds that you're doing. And that, of course, flies in the face of what Jesus himself said, that no one comes unto the Father but by me. Good works are not going to do it. So I I do think that that's what's leading Mm -hmm. to this sort of perverted form of Puritanism by which people are saying, if you do not adopt these new ways, you are the infidel who needs to be converted. And let's not kid ourselves about this, uh, Chuck. This is a crusade. It truly is. Mm -hmm. It's a vehement crusade to impose new definitions and to overthrow old definitions, old definitions of unity, social justice, salvation, love, normality, certainly truth. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, and, and in this crusade, if you will not be converted, then you must be silenced. And I think that people are approaching this with a pseudo, uh, or a pseudo holy fervor. And I think because of that, you know, we, we can feel like, oh my gosh, this seems hopeless. And indeed, people who will never see the truth, well, they have a, a devastating day of reckoning that they're going to face. But I can't help but think in the middle of all this, okay, what would I have thought if I was in the early church before Paul of Tarsus became Paul the Apostle? Mm-hmm. I might have been inclined to think, well, there ain't no hope for a guy like that. And uh, mind-blower of mind-blower, God interrupts. And this is what I, I, I have to guard against personally. Right. Because uh, there was hope for you, right? Problem. There was hope for you. That's there was hope for me, and God reminds me of that when I start thinking sort of like Elijah did, like, oh, come on, there's nobody left. I'm all alone here. I no, everybody's bound to need to bail, and God reminds me that, kid, you're not the only person whose life I ever interrupted. You're not the only person who I convict by my Holy Spirit, who I draw to seek the Word. You're not the only person conforming the truth. So, it, you know, there, there really is a place for recognizing, number one, and this to me is important, Chuck, we are not alone. There are millions of faithful believers around the world. Number two, there are many more yet to be converted to truth, and sometimes they may seem to us to be the most unlikely candidate. Mm. Therefore, as wisely as God gives us the ability to do so, we need to be about the business of preaching the gospel to the unsaved and making disciples of the saved and being the the stewards of truth that we're meant to be, uh, whether it's in the public arena, whether it's in the the 
sphere of our personal relationship. Um, again, what we have to get back to is the mandate that we have. It is not a mandate to be what we would call successful. It is not a mandate to see that, that everybody winds up believing mm-hmm. the truth. Right. But it is a mandate to be sure that we are first knowing the truth and being diligent to be conformed to the truth ourselves. I can hardly talk about sexual moral compromise in the culture if I'm allowing myself to be sexually or morally compromised. Exactly. But then we also have to be about expressing the truth. We've got to live it. We've got to know it. We have to be expressing it. And you know what? If we do that, we are being successful. By kingdom eternal principles, we're being successful. I am so glad to hear you articulate that uh, so simply, and that's exactly uh, where we are. It's been said that all politics are local, and uh, all of our work as ambassadors of Christ is essentially local, and it begins in our homes, it begins in our hearts, and God is every bit as concerned about our attitudes in the context of the uh, cancel culture as he is about our actions. Uh, our actions need to proceed from God-ordained attitudes of love, not attitudes of acceptance of what people are doing, but attitudes of love and compassion without compromising the truth. And therein lies the tension, I think, uh, because there is this constant temptation to compromise. Jesus faced it. He successfully faced it. But we're not always successfully facing it. Joe, Real quickly, 30 seconds, how do we resist that temptation? We get ourselves well grounded in the Word of God. We ask ourselves the hard questions about why we are really here. And we recognize that the temptation to compromise is one of the oldest temptations, one of the most easily given into, and ultimately can be one of the most tragic to give into. And I think with that recognition, We'll stay on solid ground. Absolutely. Well spoken. Friends, the book, Christians in a Cancel Culture, $15. We'll put it in your hands. <clears throat> it's on our website, saveus.org. Give us a call, 1-800-SAVE-USA. Become a partner. Send your gifts, friends, by faith to Save America Ministries. Do it today. We're preparing the way of the Lord for history's final hour, even this very day. God bless and be a blessing, and let's stand true to the uh, gospel the truth once delivered to the saints. You've been listening to Viewpoint with Chuck Grissmeyer. Viewpoint is supported by the faithful gifts of our listeners. Let me urge you to become a partner with Chuck as a voice to the church declaring vision for the nation. Join us again next time on Viewpoint as we confront the issues of America's heart and home.